you have your Bibles, once again, turn to Colossians. We're about to conclude this passage, this, this book, and then we'll look at some things for heading toward Christmas. I'll be looking forward to that. But Colossians chapter 4, and we're going to begin reading again with verse uh, 2. Uh, it's kind of where we stopped last week. We read verse 2 and did the whole uh, sermon on, on one verse. We'll do a couple of verses, I think, uh, this morning. But just to remind you again, this is a church that Paul is writing a letter to. And as he's writing this letter, he is in prison. It's a church that was planted out of the ministry of Paul, although he may never have visited the city of Colossia itself. Uh, Certainly he was in Ephesus and some communities not too far from there. And the gospel was spread to this community and a church was planted there. And someone from that church has come to visit him while he's in prison and has shared with him what was going on in the church. And so Paul is writing this letter to both encourage and equip them, but also to help strengthen them and help them avoid some of the the pitfalls that they are headed toward. So it's been a very beneficial letter for us. But he's wrapping this letter up now. And one of the things when you read the conclusion of Paul's letters, you're reminded this was really a man who really lived a life and was really in prison. And he's really writing to people who really live. This is a very personal letter we're reading here, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit and has blessed Christians and churches for 2,000 years. It's going to bless us this morning But again, this is a very personal letter written by Paul to these Christians there at this church. And so he says in chapter 4, verse 2, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful with thanksgiving. And that's kind of where we spent the entire sermon last week. And if you weren't able to hear it and you want to listen to it, you can find it on online. But being steadfast and watchful in prayer, what, what those things mean. At the same time, he says in verse 3, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Lord, these are some very practical insights that we've received from your word through Paul. So, Lord, today I just want you to speak to us and make us aware of the truth that is here and how it applies to each of our lives individually. And Lord, this morning, I I want to ask you to make your presence very known in the lives of those who are gathered here today. You're here among us. Lord, may we really sense that presence by removing from our heart and our mind anything that hinders our understanding and our affections for you. And Lord, for those who are struggling with illnesses and uncertain diagnosis, those who have financial strains and challenges in their marriages and their relationships, those who are incredibly burdened for children or parents or family members, I pray even at this moment you would meet them at the point of their greatest need and Let them know of your love for them and your concern for them and your presence in their life. 
And for any father who aren't with us and aren't among us, that are sick, that are having difficulty at home, that are having to work or travel so they couldn't be here with us, even at this moment, let them know how much we love them and let them be aware of your presence in their life, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul, it's interesting. Maybe we should use this as a model, right? Paul doesn't say, pray for me that the guards will be nice to me. Pray for me that this food that I'm eating will be much, much better. Pray for me that somehow or another someone will bring me a coat to wear so these nights in this dungeon won't be nearly as cold. Or pray for me that I'll have a nicer cot to sleep upon. Or pray for me that maybe I'll actually get to be freed and and be released from these chains and released from this jail. See, when you and I pray, at least when I pray, that's pretty much how my prayers go. You can sum my prayer up in whatever's bothering me and hurting me, take it away and bring really good stuff to me. And I don't see that in many of the fathers in the New Testament, many of the believers in the scripture here. I don't see them praying for those kinds of things that that seem so very important to us. Every now and then when I do sort of pray those kinds of things, and and I had the tendency to do it quite often, I'm reminded of, or the Holy Spirit, I think, reminds me of Jonah. And, you know, we preached through Jonah here several months ago, and Jonah is the most unhappy person in the Scripture, basically. He's never happy. Uh, he doesn't want to go to Nineveh, and he ends up on the ship, and he doesn't gets in the storm, and he, he's willing to die, throw him overboard, and, and the fish swallows him up, and, and then he, and the fish throws him up on the beach, and finally he goes to Nineveh, and without any joy or any, 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 any happiness or any contentment, he just walks around the city and preaches this message, and then the whole city is converted, and that makes him mad because he thinks they ought to get what they deserve. And then he sets up on a hill to see if maybe God would actually destroy them. And when that happens, God provides this this vine, this this gracious vine to cover Jonah's head so that the sun doesn't beat down on him. In the entire book of Jonah, there's only one place where Jonah is happy. And Jonah, the book, the Bible says that Jonah was exceeding glad for the vine. Because it comforted him. That's all he cared about was himself. And sometimes if you look at our prayer, I look, we're, we're to pray for our daily bread. Jesus tells us to do that. But I'm, never, I'm just awestruck here time and again when I look at the Apostle Paul. And look, a Roman prison was not a good place. And where he is. And he says, I want you to pray for me that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Pray, he says, for us that God may open a door for us to speak the word. I mean, he understands what really matters eternally. He understands that this situation he's in in prison is temporary, won't be for all eternity. And he also, I think, fully understands that he's here for a reason, that that he is in this prison because this is where God wants him. And he's able to totally deal with the fact that this is God's will for his life. I want to talk, though, focus here before we talk about that on this one phrase, though. He says, at the same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word. In other words, pray that I'll have doors that are now closed open so I can share the gospel. 
Is that how we pray every morning? Look, we talk a lot about praying for the lost. We, and, and we have many churches who pray for the lost. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll say, are we praying for the lost? And I, I assume there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with praying for the lost to know Jesus. But I, I will tell you, as you look from the beginning of the New Testament to the conclusion of the New Testament, I don't see anywhere where Paul or Peter or John or Barnabas or Timothy or any of the New Testament characters pray for any lost people by name. But what I do see them doing constantly, as Paul does here, is praying that they would be bold to share their witness and praying that, the wor- that a door would be open for them to share their witness. I think sometimes we don't pray enough for ourselves that we would look for opportunities to share about Jesus. And then when those opportunities come, we would be bold in sharing about Jesus. Why is it it's sometimes the hardest thing in the world for us to do is to talk about our Savior? We think, well, that's religion and that's personal and that doesn't matter. It's not religion. It's, it's your life. It's who you are. It's everything. And it should just come up in our daily conversations. And we have to pray for ourselves that we'll be bold in those witnesses. Again, I, I growing up in church on Wednesday nights, we'd have prayer meeting and there'd be a list of those we were praying for who were sick. And then a list of those we'd pray for perhaps who were homebound. And then there might be a list of some sometimes that we would pray for of those family members and friends of people who aren't Christians. And we would pray they would come to know Jesus. But I don't ever remember a time on a Wednesday night prayer meeting growing up where we set aside time that we would pray for ourselves. That we wouldn't be scared to death to share the gospel. And that we would look for opportunities tomorrow to let someone know who Jesus is in our life. Paul here says, pray for me that we would have boldness. Pray that a door would open. And what's he want to pray? To declare, to declare the mystery of Christ. I want to focus for just a few minutes on the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. Paul uses that phrase Many times in his writings, many times in the, in the New Testament. It's a wonderful phrase. And you look at it, what's it mean, the mystery of Christ? I mean, Christ is who he is, right? We know who Christ is. Born of a virgin, son of God, born in Bethlehem, you know, in a carpenter's shop, you know, at age 30, began his earthly ministry. What, what mystery is there? Paul knew all about him. There's a mystery of Christ. And it's rich and it's wonderful. And I love the way... The Apostle Paul speaks about that. Let me just share with you uh, something that Ligonier Ministries wrote about the mystery of Christ that just really spoke to my heart. And I don't often read word for word, but this is really good word for word. (laughs) At some point during his or after his conversion on the road to Damascus, Paul was given a mystery to proclaim to the world. A body of content that was delivered with new clarity to the apostle by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. This mystery was not some kind of secret knowledge that only an elite few could know. We're not talking about that kind of mystery. That you're in some sort of a club and only you got to have a certain level of, of, of knowledge in the club to know what it is. not talking about that. No. Rather what was given to Paul in order that he might deliver it. 
This mystery, the apostle explains, is the mystery of Christ. So Paul goes on in Ephesians in the following verses to define the mystery for his readers. But let's consider what it means that the apostle understands his mystery as the mystery of Christ or the mystery involving Jesus. The Puritan commentator Matthew Henry is helpful here. He says, listen, it's called the mystery of Christ because it was revealed by him and because it relates so very much to him. In Galatians, it shows that it was the revelation of Jesus Christ that put this mystery into Paul's own stewardship. Therefore, our Savior revealed it to his apostle Paul by the Holy Spirit. Yet the mystery was not only given by Christ, but the mystery is also about Christ. Essentially, the mystery is the equivalent to the gospel, the good news of salvation, declaring that men and women can be forgiven of their sins and made full citizens of the kingdom of God when they repent and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Throughout the New Testament, we see the gospel described as the gospel of Jesus Christ or the gospel of the Lord or the good news Given the definition of the term mystery as something that once is veiled, but now is plainly revealed, to call the gospel a mystery emphasizes the newness of the message that came when the Son of God became incarnate 2,000 years ago. It's not as though the gospel was wholly unknown to the old covenant saints in the Old Testament, for they were set right with the Father in the same way we are through faith alone. Yet the knowledge of the old covenant saints had of the gospel was faint and veiled compared to the glorious revelation delivered by Jesus through his new covenant. What they saw was in part and what we now see is in full. The way of salvation has been the same throughout all the ages, but we cannot underestimate the great privilege we have of living under the new covenant, we have God's complete revelation to his people and therefore understand him in ways better than those who lived before him could have. Let's be thankful for the days in which we have and which we live in this time. Here, the writer is saying that to those who were born before Christ and, and those Old Testament characters, and they, they, they were saved by the faith they had in a mystery yet to be revealed but Paul is saying Christ has revealed this mystery. Watch was once veiled has become clear. And it is a mystery. How did God who loves everything yet has, has, to, has to absolutely destroy sin because he's holy. How could God become the form of a man and be born of a virgin and live a sinless life? And how could he die a substitutionary death? And how could the son, the father and the Holy Spirit all three be one? How All of that is a mystery. There's no doubt about it but it's a mystery that we can know and I love the fact that Paul refers to the mystery of Christ for those who yet were born before Christ came it was a mystery what this would all look like and then when he came and he revealed himself to Paul and to all of us it's as though that has been that veil has been pulled back and we can see who he is and see the truth of the gospel and yet it is still a mystery how any of this works It's a mystery how that God would love us when we're so unloving. It's a mystery how that God would care for us when we offer nothing to him. It's a mystery for us how that when God created everything and said, 
the wages of sin is death and all of humanity has decided to sin that God still in his love and forgiveness reaches out to us. And the only way possible was to send his own son to be brutally beaten and killed by the creation in order that God might redeem the creation. If that's not a mystery, I don't know what is. And so Paul is saying here in a very real sense, man, just pray that I'll be bold in my witness. Pray that doors will be opened. Pray that I'll be able to share this glorious mystery of Christ. And when you think of the mystery of Christ, again, don't think of it as some sort of secret thing that only a few people can know. But in terms, it's a mystery because those who came before Jesus didn't see it clearly. It was veiled. And after Jesus' coming, the veil was removed. And we see the gospel clearly. But let's be honest. It remains a mystery why any of this works. It remains a mystery that we can never understand this side of heaven. As Paul says, I see through a glass dimly, but one day I'll understand it all. I just can't fully comprehend the love of a God who would love me enough to send his son to die for me. How that when he was hanging on that cross, God was able to take all the sin of all who would be redeemed and at one point in time lay it upon his son and pour out his holy wrath so that his wrath was justified and so that you and I who have repented of our sin and trusted him as Lord, that we are made right because of what Christ has done. That is a known thing to us, but let's be honest, is that not a mystery? A glorious mystery. So anytime you see Paul talk about the mystery of the gospel, that's exactly what he's talking about. Pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word. Hey, how about you and I spend less time praying for our comfort and our ease and spend more time praying for opportunities to share Jesus with people? And he says to declare the mystery of Christ. How about you and I spend less time trying to figure out politics of this world and fuss over things that don't matter and argue and quibble over things that won't matter a hundred years from now and spend more time in the glorious mystery of the gospel. Spend more time at the foot of the cross. Spend more time knowing we are citizens not of this world but of heaven. Spend more time knowing that every day I woke up, I was saved when I went to sleep and I was saved when I woke up and I'll be saved when I go to sleep. Not because of anything I've done but because of what Jesus has done, is doing and will continue to do in my life. Because he bore my sin. Because he sits at the right hand of the Father ever making intercession for us. Because he has gone to prepare a place for me and he will come again and receive me that where he is, I will be also. Spend some time on those mysteries. Think on those things. As I've said, I think every week for the past several weeks, what is it you think about when you got nothing else to think about? What is it you think about when you got nothing else to think about? Man, spend time in God's word. Spend time listening to him. Spend time thinking about the mystery of the gospel, the glorious nature of who Jesus is. And he says in verse four, that I might make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. And then verse five, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, is what he says. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Don't be an idiot. (laughs) Don't be a knucklehead. You know, the world doesn't love Christians. Christians. 
The world didn't love Christians in Paul's day. That's why he's in prison and he tells you that. The world doesn't love Christians and Christianity today. We are indeed the focus of much animosity and will become more so as time goes on. But we're not supposed to respond to the world with hatred and vitriol and anger and angst. We're to be loving and gracious and kind and generous. Someone strikes you on the cheek, you turn in the other cheek also. Someone wants you to walk a mile with him, you walk too. How many times do we have to understand what Jesus is saying when he's saying that? Paul says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Don't be an idiot. Don't make a bad impression. I mean, don't fuss and argue. I mean, you may have a worldview, a biblical worldview that is correct and true and right. But don't, don't become argumentative about it to people who don't have that worldview. Don't become, don't become judgmental. What do you mean don't become judgmental? Don't become judgmental. They, they are lost without Christ. They're doing what's right in their own eyes. And until they come to a place where they realize who Jesus is and their eyes are opened and they redeem it, you're not going to convince them that you're right. You just got to let them know Jesus loves them greatly. And so do you. They are not your enemy. The adversary is your enemy. And we've got to walk kindly and gently, and it's going to be harder to do. We need to live graciously in an age of ungracious conversation. Doesn't mean we change the way we believe. It doesn't mean Paul didn't give in to the outside world. He remained true to who he was. That's why he was in prison. But he wasn't full of vitriol and anger. He wasn't lashing out at his enemies. Even those who hated him, he loved them. And my goodness, what did Jesus say on the cross? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Someone has a different political point of view than you do. We're never going to talk to them again. And then we wonder how come the world doesn't hear us when we say Jesus is love and he loves you too. He says here, walk with wisdom toward outsiders. And then I like this, making the best use of time. We don't have forever. (laughs) The day you have is an important day. What are you making use? How are you making use of your time? I could spend a whole sermon there talking about how we waste so much time in our lives seeking pleasure, seeking things that don't matter, trying to look out for our own interest. We need to spend time loving one another, caring for one another, being, being involved in one another's lives. We need to spend time serving each other. Look, I've I've told you before, I've never regretted being generous in my life. Never regretted one time giving something away. I've never regretted sharing my life with someone. There's a lot of times I've regretted being selfish, but I've never regretted being generous. And all you have to look at is at Jesus as our model and see how generous he was, not only by giving his life, but by sharing his time whether it was sitting down with the woman at the well in this lengthy conversation or the woman who had the issue of blood and as he was going to Jerry's house to raise that little girl from the dead, he's interrupted by her and he stops and spends time with her. We could go on and on, stopping and spending time with Zacchaeus and actually going to Zacchaeus' house, making the most of our time. It's frightening sometimes when we look at our week and we see how little time we spent in God's word and how little time we spent serving and helping other people and how much time we spent focused on ourselves. And then finally, verse six, let your speech always be gracious. I sort of swerved into that a moment ago. Let your speech always be gracious. Gracious. 
Let your tweets always be gracious. Let your Facebook posts always be gracious. Christians, we live in a world where people are not gracious. You and I need to be different. It doesn't mean we doesn't mean we we never ever ever do we do we compromise our beliefs and our truth but we're always gracious i mean when people read your twitters if you do that and facebook and instagram or hear your conversations they ought to see graciousness just why because we have been dealt graciously with If we got what we deserved, none of us would be saved. If we got what we deserved, all of us would face eternity in hell. But we haven't got any of what we deserved because Jesus took upon himself what we deserve. And we have been dealt so graciously with that out of that wonderful graciousness that's given to us each and every day, we just need to be the most gracious people in our community, the most gracious people in our family the most gracious people in your workplace. Paul is in prison. His life is about to be taken. And what does he pray for? If you're at the end of your life, or your life is about to be taken, what are you going to pray for? How about this? How about praying that a door would open so I could share the glorious mystery of Christ? How about I praying that I would not waste a single moment of this day? And how about praying that I would be gracious in all of these prisoners around me and all these guards around me? Does that look like your prayer life and my prayer life? Have you ever prayed that people ought to get what's coming to them? We're a whole lot more like Jonah than we are like Paul when we pray that way. Let your speech be made gracious. Let your speech also be gracious. Verse 6. And then seasoned with salt. Wow. Okay. We're going to look at three quick passages of scripture. In Mark chapter 9, verse 50. So in Mark chapter 9, verse 50. Very familiar. Jesus says, salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, wherein will it be seasoned? Have salt in yourselves. Take the salt spoken as of as a as a perseverance from corruption and warning against corruption in other words jesus here is saying if you say you're salt but you've lost your saltiness you're no good here he's talking really about salt and light about the gospel and so when paul is talking here about your speech be gracious seasoned with salt with the gospel seasoned with the good news seasoned with if it doesn't have that it's pointless it, it it's just i love that that sense that there's something special about this you can taste it it's good it's got it's not bland it's different and then ephesians chapter 4 verse 29 look over there real quick if you have your bibles there In Ephesians 4.29, Paul writes these words, Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, and that it may give grace to those who hear it. Let that salt be there. Let it be good. Let it taste good. Let your conversation taste good. And then in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, He writes these words. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy, 
always being prepared to make a defense of anyone who asks you a reason for the hope is in you and do it with gentleness and respect. Over and over in Paul's writing, you hear him say, what you say and how you say it is important. What you say, are you saying things about Christ? Is your conversation, is your life sprinkled with the good news of Jesus? Because that's what is tasty to the world. Or is it just bland like everything else, meaning has Jesus is not in it? And then he says, be gracious and be humble and be sweet and don't be argumentative and be gentle. And dear saints, if there's any message we in the 21st century need to hear as Christians in this world, it's this message, just like Paul in a Roman world that persecuted Christians and killed Christians. The answer was not to rile against it and to talk about how evil it was and how awful it was and how they wish it would change. But in the midst of it to say, man, we found something different. Jesus has changed us so that we can even love our enemies and those who persecute us and those who say all kinds of evil things against us. But it doesn't come natural. Otherwise, Paul would not be asking you to pray for him. He understands in, listen, he understands in his flesh, he's going to become bitter to his captors. In his flesh, he may become jealous of those Preachers and evangelists who are not in prison, who have it easy. In his flesh, he may sometimes wonder if Jesus is really on his throne, why am I stuck in this prison? And so he says, pray for us. Pray for me that I'll always be gracious in my speech, that I'll always be generous to those around me, that I'll always be looking for an open door to share the gospel that I'll always have the gospel seasoning with like great salt, my conversations to the world. And then he says, so that you may, verse, last part of verse six, so that you know how you ought to answer each person. And again, as we just read in, in the book of First Peter, to be able to give an answer that's in you. You need to have a theology. Every one of you in this room has a theology. Some of you say, well, I'm not a theologian. Whatever you believe about God's your theology. Whatever you believe about Jesus, that's your theology. Some of you just have a pretty thin theology. Some of you may have an inadequate theology, but you all got one. Just means the study of God, the knowledge of God. You all got one. And again, just like we live in a time where the biblical worldview and ultimate truth and Jesus as the only way, all of that is becoming more and more seen as bigoted and will be persecuted. I mean, I just, I just spent several days in Canada with the leaders of denominations from Foursquare to Christian Reform to Salvation Army to Pentecostal to Anglican. We were all there. And I know Canada is not the United States, but it's already happening in Canada that churches, if you don't have their view on, on sexuality and, and homosexuality and gay marriage, you're not going to have the protection of the state and tax exemption. You're just not in Canada. And it's going to get even worse. And that's Canada. I mean, that's not like some third world country. And that's eventually your children and grandchildren are going to 
likely live in a world like that here. And so how, you know, on the one hand, the world we live in is going to become less and less friendly and more and more hostile toward the biblical worldview that we hold on to. So how do we function in that world? At the same time, we're going to be found that we are in a world where people are going to be more hostile to each other, more fragmented in their groups, be more, more, more as they are, as you already see it, uh, be more willing to fuss and to fight and to argue. And how do we, how, how does the Christian navigate all of that? We navigate all that the way the Christians in the first century did, the way Paul's telling us to do here by being focused on the mystery of Christ and the love of Christ and to be gentle with our speech and to be kind to everyone and to so, season our speech with the gospel. But more importantly, perhaps in any of that, you know how to have an answer for why you believe what you believe. Maybe 40 years ago, you didn't have to have such an answer because everybody kind of believed the way you did, even if they weren't Christians. I mean, 1945, you get off the ship after serving in World War II and you tell somebody Jesus is the only way to heaven and there is no other. And that marriage is only between a man and a woman. Nobody's going to say anything's wrong with you. They may not be Christians, but... They don't, that doesn't offend them in the least. Try that today. Try it 20 years from now. You have to know why you believe that. Why do we believe Jesus is the only way? Why do we believe marriage is between a man and a woman only? Why do we believe all of these things that we say are important? Paul says you have to know to be able to give an answer. And you, look, here's the deal, folks. Whether it's living a life of generosity and graciousness in a world of hostility, whether it's been able to season your conversation with the salt of the mystery of Jesus, or whether it's been able to give an answer to why we believe what believe, you need the church for all of those things. You need your Sunday school class. You need a small group that you gather with on weeknights. You need two or three other people in this church that you meet with on a weekly basis for discipleship. You need to be in gathered worship to worship him and to hear his word proclaimed. You need to make advantage of everything. That's why we need the church today more than ever. And we are grateful for this church and its passion for this community. And I'm grateful for each of you. And my prayer is that you would pray for me, that like Paul, I would be open to looking for open doors to share the gospel, that I would be gracious in my speech, that I would have my conversations seasoned with the good news and the mystery of Jesus, that I would relish in the mystery of my salvation that I would never become accustomed to it so that it had no mystery any longer. There's a huge mystery to it. And that I would be willing to give an answer and able to give an answer for what I believe and why I believe it. And that's my prayer for you this morning as well. Heavenly Father, I pray that if any in this room have never repented of their sin and called you Lord, that this would be the moment and the hour when they would do that. You would open their eyes and reveal to them that they are lost without you and that they would desire to know you and call you Lord and let you save them and give them a home in heaven and change their life forever. But for those of us who are your children, Lord, it's so easy for us to get caught up in this current of our culture where we become hostile and angry toward our enemies, where we just respond with unkindness and harsh words, where our prayer life is focused almost entirely on our own comfort and our own ease.
If anything, Lord, may we look at this passage of the Apostle Paul this morning and may it model for us how we ought to pray, how we ought to live, and what our priorities ought to be. And it begins in many ways, Lord, with even our commitment to the church that we would support and care for one another even more than we do so that we can grow together as disciples in this place so that we can see this community noticeably better because the church of Jesus Christ is here and that people would know that Christians, members of this church are people who talk sweetly and kindly to one another, who respond in love to those who hate them and whose conversations is always just seasoned with the mystery of the gospel. 